Welcome back to Coast to Coast Science. Uh, it's Heather here. I'm here for another session of Interview with a Scientist with Patricia Havermina. Did I say that right, Patty? You said that perfect. Oh, great. Um, and do you prefer Patricia or Patty? Uh, you know, I like, I like both, and uh, most people call me Patty. All right. Well, I will stick to Patty then for the purposes of our conversation. So, uh, listeners, since you might not be uh, a hardcore Twitter person like myself, and Logan tends to handle our Twitter feed, um, we became aware of Patty and her work actually through Twitter. And I am remiss to say that I didn't necessarily know her name prior to Twitter, but you might know her research. So that's something that we're going to start to talk about. Uh, Patty, you were one of the, it sounds like you were the person who described the genus that of bivalves that process methane. Is that correct? Do I have that? That, that is correct. Um, it had been described uh, previously, but I'm the scientist who was able to, uh, at long last, um, isolate a member of that genus in culture uh, so that we could operate, you know, operate with it as a model system outside of the bivalve. So yeah, that's me. Wow. And it's wow, called, that's and so let, cool. Wait, 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 wait. Let me tell you the name because this is so cool. Because sure. it's, it's fun to name a new species or a new genus and uh, all the methane oxidizing and methane consuming bacteria uh, tend, tend to have um, methylo, like a methyl group as part of their genus name. And so I knew I would have a methylo something. Uh, and uh, we had to decide what the end of that genus name would be. We ended up with Methylo profundus, profundus meaning deep. <laughs> so so Methylo yeah. profundus. And then we used for the species name sedimenti. So yes, I isolated Methylo profundus sedimenti, uh, which means the methane oxidizing bacterium from the deep. Wow, that is so cool. Uh, love a good breakdown of the name too, because it's <laughs> something that I'm learning about with my research. So I always love when there's a breakdown of that. Um, but besides your methane processing uh, bacteria and bivalves that you've worked on, uh, why don't you tell the listeners about some other stuff that you've worked on? Because it's pretty amazing when I've looked, when I tried to look through your research and it's just so extensive. I feel like I'm, I'm inadvertently becoming a fangirl over here. <laughs> Well, I was so psyched before I get into that, which, yeah, you're right, it's extensive sure. and I love it too, but I was so psyched to find out that you work on snails because they are a much undervalued member of our ecosystem. And so I was like, ah, Heather works on snails. That's fantastic. Um, the other thing, though, that people, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and they're so pretty. I mean, they're just such pretty organisms. Um, yeah, most of the time. There's a couple I work on that get pretty gross and slimy when they uh, get <laughs> up, but they're, they're cute if they're not overly sliming. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, so another, another big project I worked on that people on the West Coast tend to be aware of, but people on the East Coast maybe are less aware of, is the massive methane leak that happened uh, at Porter Ranch um, or uh, the Aliso Canyon gas facility. Um, uh, here in Southern California. Wow. Yeah. And, um, that was a, that was a massive, uh, methane emission event. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was in, in terms of scale, it was similar to the scale of the BP spill that occurred in 2010, you know, but there were some differences between the two. So that's one thing that people may be aware of. And I was, uh, actually the scientist who, uh, I took numerous, uh, soil samples right at the wellhead for a number of months, 
uh, to look at changes. Wow. Yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean, that is crazy. I mean, that's amazing, but it's also crazy. Like, we're, I, I don't know, were people uh, negatively impacted by this methane release? Like, or was it just kind of like a smell that was emanating from the area? Because I think there's been some there's been recent events on, on the East Coast of some methane releases, and uh, I believe the energy companies are trying to keep it out of the news, but that doesn't stop social media from talking about it. So I'm just curious, like, how did that methane release affect communities, like, directly? It absolutely affected communities directly. Some of the basic statistics are that it went on for four months. So this gas, Whoa. yeah, it was going on for four months. I mean, and they... Uh, to their credit, the gas company tried, you know, as soon as they knew about it, they tried to stop the leak, but the facility, it's a, yeah, it's a big porous, like if I, if I had to describe how they store the natural gas there, they, they, they actually bring it in from other places and they store it underground under, I'm going to say the capstone. I'm not sure if it's called the capstone or not, but under a very non-porous layer of rock, it gets pumped all the way down into uh, you can think about it as more porous rock underneath the natural gas does. And then it gets stored down in there. And all the wells that they have, they have over 100 wells on the facility. Um, those were originally oil wells, um, but now they, they've been okay. yeah, repurposed toward, um, I'm not sure if they inject with the same wells that they extract with, because after it's injected and stored under pressure, then the gas could be extracted back out and used by the electric company okay. to provide for uh, you know the customers. Um, so yeah, there's a community right down from from that facility, right down the mountain there. Uh, it's called Porter Ranch. It's a very nice community. And those people could smell the, you know, the additive that they put in methane that you can smell from your stove. They did, they could smell right. that. It was very strong in some areas of Porter Ranch. And there were also some reports of other compounds associated with natural gas, like benzene, which is a carcinogen. Uh, so I don't know where that ended up. I know there was a lot of community concern for a long time that uh, there may be, you know, high levels of benzene in the air, which would be of concern. Um, so yeah, yeah definitely was, of concern is I feel like is an understatement there. Yeah. <laughs> you have carcinogens getting released into the atmosphere. That's definitely not a good thing. Yeah, it it was it was big. I mean, it was in the news here for a long time. And you know, when I've given talks out on the East Coast, you know, I always <laughs> I do this thing where I say, "Raise your hand if you've heard of the BP spill," and all the hands go up in the air. Raise the, your hand if you've seen if you've heard of the Porter gas leak, and uh, and people generally haven't on the East Coast, but on the West right. Coast is different. Um, and they say that the methane itself, as another uh, number, the methane itself is um, it's something like. In the end, the amount that entered the atmosphere was the warming equivalent of like three months of our normal emissions. So it was just like adding, yeah, yeah. That's that's bananas. I mean, I, I'm not surprised that the East Coast hasn't heard of it. Uh, probably because everywhere you go, it has its own like localized natural disasters. But the fact that that was on the same scale as the BP oil spill is pretty major. I mean. It sounds remotely familiar to me because I have a degree in wildlife conservation. So when you, you know, when you hear about environmental disasters and natural resource management, you, you learn about different cases. So I feel like maybe at some point I've come across it, but I definitely like wouldn't know it by name, so to speak. And I'm guilty of being one of those uneducated East Coasters about what's going on on the West Coast and 
least uh, yeah, it, it probably goes both ways. I, I'm I'm less familiar with uh, disasters on the East Coast, but I think we're all aware of the BP spill, and part of that was because sure. of yeah, how you know how how visible it was. You get all that oil, you get that sheen. They had the boom material on the surface, you know, they, the the tar balls washing up. We can see it with the methane. You can't see it. Uh, unless you use like an infrared uh, camera or something like this. Um, so there, there actually is some footage online on YouTube. Uh, I forget if it was the Environmental Defense Fund or I forget who put it out, but there was a group who did put out uh, infrared footage of the methane coming out of the top of the mountain. It's kind of remarkable. Anyway, oh, wow. that's yeah, so that's part of my research too that I did at Caltech. And then, you know, there's a ton of other projects that I've worked on over the years as well. Um, so I can I can uh, talk about that, or we can just uh, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it sounds like you've had it, it. I don't know if methane's been like your primary uh, research topic, but it it seems like you've done a lot with that sort of thing. Definitely, so, yeah, uh, yeah. My my goal is sort of to apply what I have toward uh, climate change, and so. Um, I was okay. looking, yeah, I was looking for a position that would deal either with carbon dioxide or with methane, uh, and I ended up in a in a lab for over a decade, you know, working on methane. Uh, as a, it's a fantastic molecule. I mean, just from an academic perspective, uh, this molecule can support food webs, which is another angle of my my research, where you look at at deep sea vents and seeps and, you know, where there's no sunlight, of course, there's no photosynthesis. So if you go into the deep ocean, um, there is methane naturally seeping out of uh, the, you know, at vents and seeps naturally seeping out of the seabed. Um, and that methane provides energy and carbon to drive these extensive faunal communities, which is super cool, like just from a very yeah. nerdy, geeky kind of academic place. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's super cool. I I, uh, I don't, I can't say that I know too many folks within my like professional or academic network uh, or personal network that do anything uh, like that. There's somebody I do know that works on like the bacteria in the fracking, uh, like the bacteria that's been found on rock beds, like that has been discovered because of fracking or something along those lines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but that's, that's the thing I think as far as my network goes, that's, that's as uh, close as we get to that. Although I guess that's not necessarily true. I do, do, do know somebody who works on like uh, isotope and like carbon dating using giant clam shells to look at what was going on in the atmosphere at the time. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, but yeah. So uh, methane is like a new, for me anyway, it's it's not something that I am necessarily uh, I know much about, and I'm sure our listeners are in the same boat. So it's super cool that you're kind of it's I, for lack of a better phrase, it seems like you're definitely the expert when it comes to methane oxidizing uh, creatures. Oh well, thank you. Yes, I you know I love it. I I love thinking about it. I love um, I just love the whole thing. And then you know you can get to another level with methane because if you look at a global scale in the atmosphere, we had you know we we've seen this sort of steady rise of carbon dioxide that we can tie directly to emissions. And those carbon dioxide and anthropogenic, they're you know it's, it's humanity doing this, burning burning right. carbon and releasing it into the air. You can also look at methane emissions separate from carbon dioxide emissions because both of course contribute to warming. And uh, what's interesting about methane is there was this period where the methane emissions just sort of 
paused. So instead of just hmm. going up and up and up like carbon dioxide, so this is like a different part of methane okay. that's very fascinating right. to me. And I don't study this, but I kind of watch it. Um, yeah, you keep an eye on it. It's like having to keep an eye on the pulse of other things that like you don't necessarily work on, but you need to be aware of what's going on. Yeah, and just, you know, and just wondering how it ties in in a global way. So you can go real small with, here's a bacterium that uses methane, isn't that cool? Or you can go to a global scale and say, well, this is kind of weird because methane was tracking up, then it paused. And then just in the last few years, it started going up even faster. So it's sort of like a mystery. Ugh. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah it's just- that's a little, that's not great. <laughs> <laughs> No. It was like increasing, then it paused, and you're like, okay, maybe there's some relief. It's kind of like a horror movie where you yes. think like the person is going to get some relief, and then it's like, just kidding, they're still chasing them. Just um, kidding. Yeah, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Climate change is not getting any better at the moment. <laughs> um, so, but methane isn't the only thing you've worked on. I, I think you mentioned you've worked on the Human Genome Project as well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. my postdoctoral so, work. Yeah. Oh, okay. So uh, if you don't mind, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that that's insane. That's a yeah. huge project. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so this was, this was uh, back in the 90s. And, uh, you know, it was during this period, I was thinking about this this morning, uh, when I was, you know, getting ready for this interview, I was thinking about, you know, the state of sequencing, DNA sequencing when I started graduate school, and then how much it advanced by the time I got to my postdoc. So when I started graduate school, um, like we didn't even have the genome of a single bacterium yet, um, which right. is about 4 million base pairs or something like that. Um, and, and the sequence that we were slowly pulling out was, and I wasn't part of this, but, but it was going on at the campus where I got my degree. So I knew the people that were involved with sequencing E. coli, uh, you know, they were pulling it out 200 bases at a time and manually, you know, entering that wow. data. And yeah, I mean, it's very slow and methodical. And over the yeah. course of a year, you might get, you know, a few thousand bases. <laughs> so. Right. That's very tedious. I mean, especially if it has like millions of base pairs, right. uh, that's something that you can do quickly. And the computing power wasn't as strong as it is now. So that's like- right multiple doctoral students working on something. Yes, like exactly. Yeah. And this was their work, you know, and that was fantastic because it was a big, it was like the mountain that they wanted to climb. It was a right. big thing to do. So they got that. And it was, I remember when the E. coli genome came out and everybody was so excited. And then um, for my postdoc, I wanted to get into the human genome project a little bit. Uh, so I joined a lab. And at that point, I th- at that point, the way I remember it is that there was sort of the public, like the uh, sort of the federal, I want to say like National Science Foundation was funding uh, some research into it. But then there was a private company also trying to do it. So there was like this competition between public money and private money racing to get the human genome sequenced. And the lab I joined was one of several that had been given a chromosome to work on. So we had one chromosome to work on. And if we could sequence (laughs) that chromosome better and faster, then that would be the technology that they used for the whole human genome because there's 23 different chromosomes. Yeah. Yeah. So it was sort of like a competition. That's Uh, crazy. It's very much an arms race or like a gold rush in a way. Uh, I vaguely remember it, but I was pretty young in the 90s so I kind of like remember reading about it in like little kids highlights or Nat Geo type (laughs) 
things that are for kids and they're like, you're working on this and you're just kind of like, cool. But I, I can't imagine that's like a pretty groundbreaking thing to be a part of. Yes. Yes. And it was more than just sort of the grunt work of sequencing or, you know, grunt work isn't a good word. That's a poor word choice. Well, it feels like grunt work sometimes. Sometimes it does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does sometimes feel like very technologically based rather than anything insightful necessarily because you're just ending up with strings of letters. So the lab also worked on human disease. And so within this chromosome. We actually had two chromosomes, one that we were sequencing and then another one. Uh, the, the man I worked for was a, um, he was working on the Huntington's uh, disease um, in a huge consortium of, uh, with a huge consortium of other labs. Um, they were trying to find the genetic basis for Huntington's disease. Um, okay. Yeah. And I mean, they did. And that, that was a huge deal too. I think there were like, I don't know, there were like dozens and dozens of authors on that paper uh, when they finally identified the mutation that led to Huntington's disease. Uh, but, but then within the lab, you know, of, of the postdocs, myself included, that were there, we each worked on a different human g- disease that had been sort of mapped to that chromosome. And so the diseases I worked on were the skeletal dysplasias or the forms of right. morphism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty cool though. Uh, yes. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's super cool. So it sounds like you've been a part of some pretty major research projects. How did you get there? Like what was your undergraduate degree? Did you have any like formative experiences in the lab or the field or anything like that that kind of led you? I mean, you, as a postdoc, you mentioned you go the human, human genome project and that you're jumping into this methane research. So I'm just curious about how you ended up on those paths. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because we think about that from time to time. Like life is funny that way, how you do all these various things and then you try to kind of look back and figure out, you know, how did A lead to B lead to C? And I think um, I definitely loved biology when, you know, from you know, the time I was five years old, I loved animals as a lot of kids do. And, you know, and, and in high school, I did have a good biology instructor. I had two very good biology instructors. Um, and you know, I enjoyed, that definitely helps. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I, you know, it sounds kind of gruesome, but I remember to this day, I remember the dissections that we did in biology. Yeah. Uh, and it just connected dots for me that, you know, oh, these part, you know, these parts of a frog or whatever we were dissecting, you know, they, they work together to form an organism, you know, that, uh, that, you know, that lives in our yard or whatever. <laughs> it was, right. It was cool. Yeah. No, it's, it, that's really cool. It, it's, I think that having uh, some, there's usually a teacher at some point in somebody's like elementary or pre-college uh, schooling that, pushes you toward like inadvertently you don't know it at the time but you're like oh I remember this experience or like a teacher that was just really good at teaching the material and it stuck with you so yeah yeah definitely uh yeah uh so that's how I got into biology but then um you know I started in grad school I was working on bacteria uh because um uh all the classic uh sort of DNA and molecular biology experiments from the 50s and 60s, like, you know, I, you know, identifying, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, transposons, you know, the Barbara McClintock did and identifying the genetic material and, you know, all the, and uh, just all these various experiments that had right. been done that sort of shaped how we came to understand how a cell works. Um, those experiments were 
possible uh, in, in part because you can work with small organisms like bacteria. So I wanted to work in bacteria so that I could really get at something fundamental. Um, and that was good, but then I wanted to do something that felt bigger. Like I wanted to take what yeah. I learned as a graduate student and do something that felt sort of more impactful toward people. Because, mm-hmm. in, yeah, as a graduate student, I actually was working on the structure and function of the uh, beta subunit of RNA polymerase in E. coli, um, which is a lot of words that, you know. Yes, it is. I'm going to be honest. That's, those are not words that I interact with on a daily basis. So I can't say that I know what they are. Right. I, mean, I don't do a lot of molecular. I am an ecologist by trade. <laughs> Yeah, it was very molecular and it was cool. It was great. But it was also like, well, nobody, I mean, when you say E. coli, a lot of people think, oh, that's what you get sick from if you don't cook your hamburger well enough. Right. Which is kind of true, but it's also an important organism for other reasons too. So I wanted to do something that sort of would be more meaningful to people. And I got on the Human Genome Project from there. Um, okay. Yeah. And so it, it fit the bill. And then, um, you know what, uh, at Caltech, being able to put climate change, which matters to people, and bacteria together. It was like a marriage of both the things that I loved. Yeah, it's like a uh, it's a dream come true kind of because <laughs> yeah. you're going, you're taking your expertise, and you're at a university. Well, not only an excellent university, but a university where they're pushing for that sort of research, and uh, you get to do that every day, and that's super cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm just curious. The the sig this I think it was a signaling you talked about. What is that? Could you break that down for the listeners? All the sure. Killer jargon you just used. <laughs> you don't mind because I I would love it broken down for me yeah, personally. <laughs> are you uh, are you saying the um, the graduate work with the E. coli or? Yeah, yeah. The the yeah. I think. Um, in in the email, at least, I have it up because there's a couple of words that, that, that you mentioned, like tyrosine kinase signaling. Oh, 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 oh yeah. I wasn't sure if that was, uh, that might be different from the E. coli stuff yeah, that yeah. you were working on. I'm happy to hear about either because, uh, you know, I understand the basics of cells and I'm sure there's folks out there that are like, I know what a mitochondria is and that's about it. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, mitochondria, I'm glad you brought it up because those are amazing. Yeah. And they used to be bacteria yeah. too. I mean, they were bacteria. They did. Yes, and they're so yeah. cool. If you've ever, so I'm kind of getting off on a tangent here, but if you've ever That's seen That's okay, them, tangents are great. <laughs> tangents are fun. And a lot of people do know what mitochondria are uh, for one way or another. And if you ever see um, either a drawing of a mitochondrion or a um, scanning, well, actually a transmission electron micrograph going through a mitochondrion, one of their distinctive features is they have these stacks of membranes inside. They're called cristae, I okay. think. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, sorry. I was just saying, yes, <laughs> yeah, acknowledging that I heard you. Yeah, sure. Sorry. Okay. Go on. No, it's cool. Um, so yeah, so they have these stacks of membranes. They're full of all this membrane and the, the sort of the engineering principle behind that is that the more surface area you have, the better you, like if you use membrane for a process and you have more of it, then you can do more of that process. So actually the membrane is, yeah, and that's where the energy is made in the mitochondria and it's made on the membrane. So it's cool to see all those stacked membranes. Um, Now, uh, when I started working with thanatrophs, the the methyloprofundus that we talked about 10 or 20 minutes ago, um, yeah, yeah, those 
those methanotrophs, those methane-eating bacteria, also have all that stacked membrane inside their cells. So, you know, there's there are these parallels oh. and mirror, mirrored things that keep coming up the more you look in nature. And it, it, it's really cool when it starts to hang together into sort of an image of how sort of biology works at this scale. So, yeah, so that's, that's mitochondria. And you're right, a lot of people do know that. Um, the tyrosine kinase thing that I mentioned in my email, that's from my post doctoral work. So, oh, okay. So I can talk about that though. Cause that's all, I mean, I can talk, yeah, sure. let, let's talk about everything, yeah. Heather. Yeah. Talk about everything. That's great. <laughs> okay. So yeah. It, yeah, as a postdoc, I joined this lab. I wanted to do something that mattered to people. Uh, the human genome was big and, uh, the, the man I worked for, um, John Wasmuth, he was running this lab. Um, he, um, he, he had about, you know, a dozen different diseases that, that he had different people working on. There was a woman, okay. uh, yeah, Rita Shang was working on um, achondroplasia, which is a common form of dwarfism. Um, a lot of uh, actors that are of short stature, um, people might be familiar with achondroplasia through through those sorts of avenues, seeing seeing actors right. of short stature like that. Um and uh, she, so she was working on achondroplasia. That was one of the um, skeletal dysplasias. Um, there were other people. I mentioned Huntington's disease. Um, there was a woman, right. um, Deanna Church, was working on um, cre- uh, no, was she working? I think she was working on Crete de Shaw, which is a French term meaning "cry of the cat." There are these babies oh. that. Yeah, there are these babies when they cry, they sound like a cat and and it's a, I don't know if it's a syndrome or disease, but um, she was working on that disease Um, and, you know, other, other ones too. I don't remember all of them. Uh, Yeah, I mean, 12 diseases is a lot for one lab to be tackling, so. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it was basically, it was in that era when it's like, if we could understand what gene is affected, then we might be able, that will contribute to other labs who are working on developing therapies. So that was kind of the idea. Yeah. So we were just interested in finding the, the genes and then ideally the mutations. So I joined in with a new with a skeletal dysplasia that was actually uh, lethal, um, called oh. fan- yeah, uh, it's called fanatophoric dysplasia, and um, it is the reason. And, and so we thought that it might, we thought the mutation that causes fanatophoric dysplasia might be in the same gene uh, responsible for achondroplasia. Uh, which Rita Shank okay. had been working on. Yeah. Cause, cause the, you know, the phenotype was kind of similar and, uh, but the difference was, uh, uh, um, people that have thanatophoric dysplasia, they, you know, their bones are so small. They're, they're even more, uh, affected than people with achondroplasia. Their bones are so mm-hmm. small that as soon as these babies are born, their rib cage isn't big enough for them to, uh, to breathe. So they, they oh, can't goodness. get, it's horrible. I mean, they can't get enough yeah. air. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, they have other other uh, skeletal problems as well. So these babies, you know, they carry it a term, mothers carry it a term, and often they don't know that they have, this is usually a spontaneous mutation, so the mother doesn't often know that she's carrying a baby with this condition, and then she gives birth and uh, and the baby can't breathe, and so it's it's horrible. Um, yeah, that's heartbreaking. And it's great that you were able to like work on something that affects people 
Uh, yeah. So yeah. I mean, it was so satisfying. It was fantastic because yeah. I, yeah, I found the mutations and we'll get to the molecular biology in a minute, but finding the mutations to give you a sort of a anchor to think about this once I had it. Okay. So imagine a, a, a couple who's had a thanatophoric uh, dwarf um, right. and that, and that couple, and it's a spontaneous mutation that leads to it because these people never survive. Um, so that mm. couple, imagine they still want to have a baby and they get pregnant again. That couple is going to be terrified that they're going to lose another child. So for those people, you know, and there were a number of them over the years that sent us amniocytes, we knew mathematically that they wouldn't have another baby with thanatophoric dysplasia. Oh, right. Because interesting. it's a, yeah, because spontaneous it's a spontaneous mutation that leads to it. So you would never like neither oh. of the parents have it. So it's like you can tell them, no, no, it's fine. And yet there's such a level of comfort if you can send amniocytes to a lab, have them scan for the mutation and send back a right. report that shows that no, you're so just the peace of mind that these mothers and fathers yeah. were given, I think is really valuable. Oh, for sure. Especially yeah. with something that is so devastating. If you're carrying a baby to term and then you don't get to take it home, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I, I can't imagine the type of heartbreak that leads to. So it's great that your the lab you were working in was be was able to like provide that sort of peace of mind and like, nope, it's just a random thing that happens <laughs> occasionally. And it was terrible that it happened to you in the first place, but it shouldn't happen to you again. And that, that's, that's right. That's great. That's yeah. great that you can provide that sort of peace of mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the yeah. protein that was affected both in achondroplasia and thanatophoric dysplasia is, it's a, I mean, here's a bunch of more big words. It's a fibroblast. <laughs> I know it's, this is science, uh, fibroblast growth factor receptor. So it's a, it's a trans, okay. another, tra- it's a membrane protein. Lots of stuff happens on membranes. It's a membrane protein. Yeah. That, yeah. It receives signals, uh, on the outside of the cell, and then it translays, trans, transmits that signal into the inside of the cell to start a cascade of reactions inside the cell that then signals proper development, or in the case of these mm-hmm. mutant versions, improper development. And that's a tyrosine. In the case of these skeletal dysplasias, it's a tyrosine kinase transmembrane protein uh, sort of mediating that signal in the membrane. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. So it's basically like your drunk friend that calls you in the middle of the night <laughs> and is like, hey, I have a story to tell you, but I'm not going to tell you correctly. And you, there's misinformation happening. That's so, the mutant protein. Yeah. Yep. Gotta, gotta watch out for those mutant proteins. In those drunk <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. They transmit Yeah, let's like make analogies that are very uh, basic so that... <laughs> <laughs> it helps me remember things. So hopefully it's useful for other folks too. <laughs> yes. It's an unreliable um, narrator telling you the wrong yep. story. Yeah. Either that there's yep. too much signal outside or there's not enough signal outside. And, and all of a yeah. sudden you're doing stuff in your house that you shouldn't be doing in the first place. But yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, so back to the so we're gonna, I want to jump back to the bivalves and the symbionts just because I, I don't – I. Uh, admittedly don't know much about it. I don't work on bivalves. Um, I knew that they existed, but uh, uh, well, by obviously bivalves. What I meant was the God, That would be, that would be sad. Um, if I just knew they existed and didn't know much. Having taught 
<laughs> lectured on them a little bit. Um, so with the methanotropes, like, so it's the bacteria living in the bivalves that are on these vents, correct? Uh, yes, yes, yes. And okay. there are plenty of these methanotrophs that are not symbionts at all. Methala profundus just happens to be one that who's, you know, okay. some, some members of the genus do live, uh, symbiotically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. So I guess, the, and they're living in these deep, uh, deep thermal vents. That's, that's where they're living, correct? Um, so mostly, so, okay. So, uh, this gets global again real quick, but, but that's cool yeah. too. Yeah. So, you know, um, it gets into tectonics a little bit. So we have, you know, these, these plates that move on the planet, we have these tectonic plates and in some parts of the ocean, uh, plates are spreading away from each other. And at those places where the plates, you know, they are spreading from each other, heat from within the planet can escape as, as, as heat, and those are thermal vents. I think the most remarkable, th- well, I don't know, I, I shouldn't say that one is more remarkable than another, but one that people study, I think, is in the middle of the Atlantic. The, um, and right. I've never done anything. I think you're allowed to have. I think you're allowed to have favorite thermal vents. <laughs> okay. But Hawaii is nice too, which is not the same thing at all. But Hawaii yeah. is beautiful. Um, and it's right. got volcanoes. So, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's this rift in the middle of the Atlantic and uh, there's, and that's where some of these really amazing chimneys are. And this, you know, fluid spewing out that's like super, super hot because with the pressure at the deep sea floor, you can have even hotter than boiling water because the pressure keeps it liquid. So you get these insane temperatures. You get um, hydrogen sulfide coming out, which is another energy source. Um, and that's those are thermal vents. Okay. I didn't work there. I worked at methane seeps, which is sort of at the okay. other end of the moving plates. If you imagine one of these plates going underneath another, that's a subduction event. So right. um, there are these subduction zones. And uh, the one that I mostly worked on is here along the West Coast. It, there, I don't, there's various plates involved. It's not just two plates. But right. Yeah, but when that you makes pull- sense, you're like right on the subduction plate. So it's like basically in your backyard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And when one plate goes under another, it's sort of, I mean, it's a slow process, but on geological time scales, it's actually kind of fast. Um, I mean, you know, it's all relative. So when one plate goes under another, it kind of drags with it all the, you know, any organic or, you know, sediment or whatever that was on it. So you get this organic stuff getting dragged down underneath another plate. And so now it has, you know, heat and pressure to convert it to, uh, I guess, you know, oil and gas and that sort of thing. So at these subduction zones, you have an accumulation of uh, sort of petroleum and gas and that kind of stuff, which then can bubble out as at methane seeps. So the methane seeps are not, they're not at a rift, they're at a subduction zone. Interesting. Yeah. And so, and, and so they're cold, they're, they're generally cold seeps, not hydrothermal vents, but some are, some are warm. I mean, some have a little bit of warmth to them. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Cause I think when we hear methane uh, the most, we hear about like greenhouse gases and climate change and global warming, like those uh-huh. like hot buzz freeze phrases. So yeah. to hear that a methane seep is not necessarily warm is kind uh-huh. of a surprise. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's something yeah. you think about. I mean, it, it, it's at a deeper, like, level of the ocean. So that makes sense because it's cooler the deeper you go. But when you think about plate tectonics, you think about a lot of the energy that's happening at those 
whether it's a subduction zone or not, you, I think most people would think like everything's hot when that stuff's happening. So it's interesting yeah. to think that it's not. You know, it's, it is interesting. I think that that's the way I saw it as well when I started at Caltech. I, I kind of imagine these places all being hot. And I, I'm not sure if that's just what we absorb from popular science or, or not. But having worked with various samples, it's they're very cold. These methane seeps along the subduction zone are, are usually, you know, they're four degrees Celsius. They're, they're cold. And if they get up to 10 degrees Celsius, which is still cold, you know, that's considered warm. Uh, relative to four degrees. So that's right. the, yeah, that's the window we're looking at, um, at these seeps. Um, and, and, wow. but then you get these beautiful, extensive faunal communities growing from, from the, those geological processes, uh, with clams. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, mussels actually, the genus is bathy. I, I don't know if it's bathy modiolus or bathy modialis. I think it's bathy modialis, uh, is the name of the genus. Um, and these sure, are large. Whatever. Sounds great. I mean, I honestly yeah. don't. Yeah. I don't know yeah. for that particular group. Uh, yeah. Used to be in how to guide with pronouncing uh, Latin and Greek scientific <laughs> names together. Yeah, they uh, they carpet the they carpet some of these areas. They're like you know some of them get okay. to be like eight inches tall. They're huge mussels. They're not like the little black mussels at the grocery store. They're right. Huge. Yeah, um, and they're pink inside because they have you know they're pink inside when they're alive. It's just, it's cool. Okay. Cool. They yeah. sound like very um, pastel goth sort of vibe going on. <laughs> they're in Definitely. the dark, they're black yes. on the outside, but they're soft and like pink on the inside. So that's the, uh, yeah, that's too funny. Yeah. That's yeah. really cool. Um, yeah, they are cool. Yeah. We got, I got to tell you a story. We got, we got some ones sure. that, yeah, they don't live very well at our, you know, at sea level because they're used to these high pressure environments. Um, but, you know, I wanted to do some experiments with some and I got some from a, from a friend of ours in uh, Georgia. She sent some out. And so I had these little, and she sent a, a, a you know, selection of them. So they were alive. Uh, they were different sizes. And I took some of them and put them in different containers with seawater. <laughs> it, was the, it was the most bizarre thing because we don't really think about muscles being able to move necessarily. It's not like right because they they're right? they're typically a sessile organism. They stay put yeah, uh, after the stage. So it, it, I imagine, well, unless their scallops kind of swim a little bit, but in general, they don't move. That's right. That, and they're sort of anchored and they have these big beds. And you can see, you know, if you look at pictures from the deep sea, you see these, you know, they're not moving around very much. So imagine my surprise when I go into lab and I'm checking my muscles and I have them in these different, you know, sort of contain, clear containers of seawater. And they have figured out how to suspend themselves with, they, they somehow these guys have used, uh, they make something, threads. They make these threads, yeah, which is super yep. strong. And somehow these guys had like figured out how to, attach their threads up on the side of the container and haul themselves up so that they weren't on the bottom, but they were like floating in the middle of the container. It's like, what the heck, man? It, it wow. I, I would have loved to see the video footage of that. Like if yeah. it's, it's a sin you didn't have like a camera set up, not that you would anticipate that they would do that, but yeah. to, to somehow get their Bissell thread attached to like the edge of the outside of the tank. That's, yeah. that's like next level cephalopod yes. level. Yes that we're looking at here and that makes me nervous <laughs> it was very weird for your show the next time you're at a restaurant yes you don't know. 
Yeah, so it's gonna crawl off your plate or something with those things. Yeah. yeah, it was like grappling hooks. It was the it was the most bizarre thing. And so I'm like, you get back down where you belong, but the next day, same thing, it was back up again. Wow, that was, that's that was crazy. crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that and now I'm sus- I'm even more suspicious of mollusks. <laughs> I study mollusks and I like them as a study organism, but I am suspicious of the things that they can do. They're like a little too smart sometimes. They are very smart indeed. Yes. Yeah. That's so interesting. Well, that if you don't mind me repeating that anecdote, I'm going to on Monday when I <laughs> mollusks to our plant and animal ID course because they're gonna their minds are gonna be blown. Yeah, well, just uh, so you get it right, the threads were not outside the container. They were like anchored on okay. the inside, but somehow it found but something still, to grab onto. Still, I know. Yeah. It's weird. They they probably propelled themselves upwards, but then it's like, okay, so how do they still get their thistle thread to get to the side of the tank like that? It's very mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. interesting that they did that. Hmm. Yeah, I was freaking out. I was like, you. Yeah, I would too. Belong. Yeah, I would think that somebody's playing a prank on me at that point. I'd be yeah. like, all right, who, who did this? Because there's no way. There's no way. Did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that is crazy. Um. So to kind of shift gears a little bit, uh, you mentioned in your email that you wrote a science fiction novel. About, I did. Yeah. If you want to talk about that a little bit, I don't want to like, I, I don't, I would love you for to talk about instead of me spoiling kind of what it's about, but it, I am excited for it to come out. It sounds uh, super interesting. Well, I hope it is. Um, I love it. I've had a lot of fun. So I wanted to, um, um, you know, sometimes when I give, uh, outreach talks. Um, I, you know, people will, people are so appreciative to learn things like to learn about, you know, how bad. So, uh, okay. I'm going to go off on another tangent here. I was talking with someone once and they said, I was talking about the bacteria at Porter ranch and how the bacteria change when the methane is kind of, you know, spewing out of this damaged wellhead, right. how, how the soil bacteria change. And she looked at me and this is what's so cool about, you know, different perspectives because someone will say something that just makes perfect sense and you never thought about it that way before. So she looks at right. me and she, yeah, it's, it's super cool. I'm talking about the bacteria, how they change in the soil. And she says, Oh, so it's like earth has its own immune system. And I thought, wow, that's oh. really, that's kind of a cool way to think about it. It's like the bacteria are yeah. kind of like the little antibodies running around doing the thing they need to do to keep earth healthy. Um, right. Yeah. So, uh, so um, that sort of anthropomorphizes Earth, you know, but that's cool. Um, and that yeah, but I, it's good to think of those things. In, it's good to, as, as much as it's not great to anthropomorphize things, it is good for learning concepts and better understanding how things work because humans are very selfish little mammals. So anything that kind of we can relate our processes processes to other processes, I think that it's just good for learning at bare minimum. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. Yeah. And you know, and as you, uh, you bring up another, you sort of remind me of another point, which is that, uh, we each have our, we each sort of, uh, develop a story as, you know, through our life. Um, and, and that's where, that's where this novel came from was, um, uh, you know, see, seeing, seeing people and how we are on the world and feeling like sometimes we aren't thinking broadly enough. Um, that, that kind of wanted, sort of prodded me into getting my thoughts down on paper that maybe there's a way to think about earth differently. Um, so, you know, how, how could we go about kind of shifting how we see 
us and Earth sort of in relationship with each other. So I kind of came up with two characters, um, and one of them, and all it bring the story brings together a bunch of stuff from you know from my own set of experiences uh, that we've been talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. So uh, one character I wanted, I wanted him to sort of uh, self-identify as a planet, like he sort of within the span of his life, I wanted him to sort of feel like he could encompass the span of Earth's life, if that makes sense. And then, yeah, it was kind of like I wanted him to identify what it means to be a planet, like to think in that kind of scale. Um, Yeah. I mean, humans are kind of like each individual organism is kind of a planet for like the microbes that live in and around and on us. So you just blew my mind. That's true. Yeah. So those little microbes, they don't think about us as people. Yeah. No, (laughs) they're just like, this is the thing I'm living on. So yeah, uh, they they don't know necessarily. Yeah. 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 So, um, I wanted, and, 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 you know, and some people, if you ask people, for example, if you just ask a random guy off the street or a random woman off the street, if you just say, um, Hey, you know, how long do you think there have been trees on Earth? You know, you who knows what kind of answer you'd get. But I think that most people don't realize, for example, that, you know, trees and actually most of the stuff on land has only been here for the last 10% of planetary history. Right. That 90% of planetary history, there was nothing on land. It was, you know, it was all in the ocean. I think a lot of people may or may not know that. I mean... That's my experience anyway. Um, Yeah, no, I would say that's probably right, is that people, I think people, there's such a hyper-focus on dinosaurs because they're pretty cool and they're extinct. Um, And and megafauna in general gets a lot of, uh, they get a lot of cultural capital. Like a lot of people seem to know about them. There's not too many people thinking about the great dying billions of years ago with the bacteria or whatever, with that events called where the cyanobacteria basically killed itself because they made too many of themselves right. um, and changed the oxygen in the atmosphere. So, you know, you don't have everybody going around and thinking about that. I'm actually, it's funny you bring this up. I'm taking an invertebrate paleontology class right now. So it's, uh, it's really interesting learning about older uh, history and like learning about like geological time and, and how, how, organisms today relate to fossils and like what's going on in the fossil record itself. It's just stuff that you don't really think about all the time. And now I feel like I have this little nugget of developing knowledge in my brain about geologic history. So. Yeah. And I, you know, I took, I sat in on a course like that at Caltech when I started working there uh, run by Joe Kirschvink, who is the snow, one of the snowball earth guys. So he, the cyanobacteria uh, led to snowball earth when the entire planet was arguably covered in ice and snow. And, and that was, he had contributed significantly to that. So he was teaching a course on, you know, the, the history of earth and that's, and that's where I was first exposed to some of that as well. And you're right. People, you know, may or may not know about it, may or may not think about it, but I, I felt like I came away from auditing that course with a, with a different sense of my place on earth. So I wanted to somehow bring some of that into fiction and that's where this character came from. So he sort of is through the course of the novel. He's sort of experience, experiencing uh, the pr- the procession of events on Earth. Um, and by the end of the novel, he can kind of encapsulate it all, which is you know his journey, I guess. Um, yeah. And then yeah, there's another that's character. Super cool. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, it's fun. I encourage anyone who wants to um, play with fiction to by all means do it. It's, it's really expanded how I think about language and how I think about people and characters and motivation and just all sorts of stuff. Yeah. It's all, yeah. Um, so then the Porter Ranch leak, uh, led to the other character because, you know, like I said, people can't see methane the way they can see oil. And I've always wondered if we could see methane or if we could see carbon dioxide, you know, would we live any differently than we do? Uh, cause so many, so many pollution events in our, in our history, uh, you know, sort of got people on board because it was a visible, horrible thing. So if you have, you know, manure on the right. streets, you know, people are like, well, we have to, you know, we have to get rid of the manure on the streets or if, you know, or the oil spill, we have to clean that up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there are pollutants that are invisible. So I wanted a character who could see the invisible stuff too. And so that's the other character. So she can see carbon dioxide. She can see methane. She can see nitrogen and oxygen and argon. She can see all of it. She can look at air. And the more, the more time I spent with her as a character, kind of the more I started to realize that everything around us is do is changing the air. Like, you know, if there's a blade of grass, it's changing the air in the, you know, the layer of air around it. Um, right. Everything, you know, so, so she then can look at sort of, you know, the landscape, she can look at the air in the landscape and say, oh, well, there's oxygen being produced over there. And there's water vapor coming off over there. And so she can kind of interpret what's going on just from the air, which I think is kind of a cool superpower. So, yeah, I'd say so. That uh, sounds super cool. So what's the, what's the title of your uh, novel? And when does it come out? Uh, so I'm hoping it'll be out by the end of this year. Um, which is 2019. We're in 2019 as I'm talking to yep. you and I'm hoping that it's um, out. Uh, I'm hoping in a few weeks, we'll see. Um, certainly okay. by the, yeah, by the end of the year. Um, and the title currently is um, Arrowvoyant. So if you think of clairvoyant, but not clairvoyant, but arrow, yeah. like air, arrowvoyant. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah. And that's the name of her superpower. She's, she's arrowvoyant. And the guy is geovoyant because he, he sort of knows earth and she knows air. Oh. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this sounds super cool. I, uh, I'm looking forward to its release. Yeah, and the, the big bad villain is the fossil fuel industry because the fossil fuel industry, <laughs> yeah, it's the big villain. It, this is set on a different world, you know, and I was able to pull in my genetic right. stuff too because we have this CRISPR craze going on right now where people are using CRISPR to tweak the genome in all sorts of ways. Um, you can, you know, C-R-I-S-P-E-R. I'm not sure what it stands for, but it's this new way of changing genes in the human right. genome. Yeah, and... Um, so I was able to, so I, you know, so part of the book is, is all about how we used CRISPR to create these uh, genetic changes in people uh, so that they could see air or, or live time or whatever, like, you know, like that. Um, and then um, the fossil fuel industry, uh, it, there's been some news lately about Exxon uh, on our world, nonfiction, actual Yeah, truth. like, you know, in... <laughs> In real, in the real world, in the real world, yeah. Yeah, There's been um, so there's been news lately that they've known since 1980 or earlier that fossil fuel use 
harms the climate that Exxon knows and has known all along. And it's not too surprising, but they keep pushing it down. They keep hiding it. They keep trying to say, you know, we're fighting it. And it's like, well, it doesn't feel like you're fighting it. It feels like you're trying to hide it. So that becomes the villain in my book. Only again, it's anthropomorphized where they actually do want to kill anybody who can say otherwise. So that's sort of, wow. I mean, I'm sure that there have been people who have lost their livelihoods and this is me wildly speculating because (laughs) they knew about something. So I don't think it's a far leap to say, and especially when we're in this age of social media, I think it's definitely harder to suppress stuff. Um, Definitely harder to find legitimate sources too. So even if something does get out, they can be like, oh, that was just like a Reddit thread with no legitimate news source. So can't, or like no journal article to cite back to, so we can just pretend it doesn't exist. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like your your book encompasses a lot of the different issues, not only that you talked about today, but that we care about uh, on the podcast in terms of like climate change and uh, you know. I've been so thrilled by the pod, just to plug your podcast. I've been so amazed. I've been thrilled. I enjoyed every single one. Thank you. Yeah. I love your energy. I love, and this is unprompted. Heather did not ask me to say this. I (laughs) I did not. I promise. (laughs) No one can see how hard I'm blushing right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's great. It's a, it's a great podcast. I, I, I've told all my friends about it to get on and listen to some of them. Oh, great. Thank you so much. We definitely appreciate anybody that's uh, willing to share the good word of Coast to Coast Science because we love it. It's a passion project and we're hoping that it reaches more ears. Uh, We just love talking about science and talking, doing this series of interview with a scientist has been so much fun talking to people about their research and the different issues surrounding it and maybe other like uh, fun projects that they have going on aside from their research too, because, you know, scientists are more than just the papers they're putting out there. So it's, it's good to hear from the people that are doing their research too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you bring up social media. Um, that's, that is a nice, uh, advanced, uh, that's how I came across your podcast was seeing you on Twitter. And, um, um, and I, I love connecting with people on Twitter, um, which is my Twitter handle. I'm going to go ahead and plug that is PL Tavermina. And I also, um, my, um, my not the website if anyone does uh have any interest in the novel um the uh the website is pltavermina.com uh and the there's not a whole lot there now but uh, but i'm working on it and when the novel comes out you can i'll definitely be announcing it on twitter um yeah yeah we'll definitely make sure that we share your information through social media so that you can Thank you. get some attention because it sounds like a really interesting. I love sci-fi stuff. I mean, yeah. I consume it like no other. Uh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, cool. it's cool stuff. So, so yeah, it sounds like a really interesting concept. I'm looking forward to reading it. You know, when I'm not reading a thousand right. other things, my own right. research. Yes. <laughs> uh, um. But I think I will be losing the room shortly to another meeting. So unfortunately. Uh, I I don't think we have time for anything else, but I just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast and talking about your research and your experiences and all the things you've been involved in. I'm totally blown away. And I'll preemptively say we would love to have you back to talk again in the future because I think uh, there's, I'm sure there's things that we would love to touch on that we didn't get a chance to today. So yeah, this is a lot of fun. So I'm happy to talk with you anytime. Yeah, great. Well, thanks again, Patty, and uh, 
Thanks again, listeners, for another episode of Interview with a Scientist. And uh, keep sciencing. We'll see you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find us anywhere podcasts can be heard. Love the pod? Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help boost visibility and ratings. You can find us on Facebook at Coast to Coast Science, on Instagram as Coast to Coast Science, and Twitter as Coast to Coast Sci. And our website is ctcspodcast.wordpress.com. We're also on Patreon now at patreon.com slash coast-to-coast-science. Any amount you can send is greatly appreciated. Logo by Janet Gorman. Sound mixing by Heather Kostick. Intro and outro music is Bongo Madness by Kinkas Moriera. And our next episode will be vaccines. So keep your ears peeled and keep sciencing. <laughs> <laughs>